Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Today's review is of Trey Edward Schultz's post-apocalyptic horror flick, It Comes at Night, which is currently streaming on Netflix. Schultz's sophomore film tells the tale of two families attempting to survive under one roof during a mysterious apocalypse. But as we quickly learn, danger doesn't come only from the outside world. And to discuss today's film is returning friend of the show, Berto. Hey man, how's it going? What's happening? I'm good. Uh, this was quite the film to pick, considering yeah. our current uh, COVID situation. And mm-hmm. I think, if anything, it definitely made me more anxious than the first time I watched it. Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely better on a rewatch. Yeah. I mean, you and I both, we spoke briefly about it, but the first time we watched this when it came out back in 2017, I believe, we were pretty much lukewarm on it, weren't necessarily really blown away, and it kind of was a movie that came and went for me. And I'm curious what you thought about it on a rewatch, how your uh, impression of it changed, if at all. Yeah, so when I first watched it, um, it it was pretty slow. I thought it was really slow. Um, And I I don't know, maybe I didn't pay much attention to it just because the fact like it was pretty slow and it was just like dark. For me, I had a hard time like hearing them when they spoke with with their mask on Mm -hmm. um that was kind of the thing and then also like the echoing on the wall when the kid's in the attic but um yeah yeah, at the beginning i thought it was pretty slow and then the second time re-watching it first thing i noticed like i watched it yesterday it's like first thing i noticed was like oh this is some like extreme version of covid kind of thing and then it's like wow like it's so relevant to now and it's like um, but now I don't know. I paid, I guess I, maybe I paid more attention, but I, I enjoyed it more the second time just because realizing like the character connection and just the story itself was really well done. I thought. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there is something to watching this movie during COVID. There's a lot of parallels, obviously yeah. it comes at night. It's a lot more, uh, exaggerated or in terms of mm-hmm. the, the lethality, not to like downplay COVID, but the lethality of the, uh, of the virus or whatnot that's yeah. in the movie is a lot more deadly and we see like people get black splotches on their skin very quickly. It only takes a day or so for you to become infected and eventually die. But it does add an extra layer, especially like I said, to the tension, I think, and the overall paying attention to like things like cleanliness, uh, hygiene and things like that, that are things that we're very conscious of those things normally because you and I are for the most part, pretty normal people. But (laughs) at the end, like an extra reliance on making sure that we're cleaning hands, that we're not touching our face, things like that. And to see our current COVID situation kind of exemplified yeah, in a really terrifying way, I think it just overall the, made the entire film resonate with me more so. But I'm curious, what was your expectation for the movie if you remember the first time you watched it? Because I remember my expectation for it being very heavily based on the trailer that came out before its release. Mm. And that I think plays into a big part of why I was lukewarm on the movie originally. Yeah. I was expecting to be very creepy and very, um, I don't know. I was just, I was just ready for some real scary moments and that's not really what you get. Like there are creepy moments, there's creepy scenes, but it's not heavily like a monster or something. It's like, not like, you know, that's sort of expecting something to pop out of darkness kind of thing. And it wasn't that it's mostly like, story based and it's it's more of a um i guess the monsters are within the people in mm-hmm. the story so it's like it's one of those kind of movies where there's no physical monsters just like i mean there's a virus and so but um the monsters are the humans themselves and how they they react in a in a 
intense stress situation. Um, so my expectation, I was just excited to see it. Like I remember it was just like, it looks so creepy because it's filmed mostly in the dark and it's like they're isolated inside this house where all the windows are like blocked off. And I was just excited to see and just be ready to be scared. But then it kind of like, it was like a letdown to be honest, the first time watching it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I think but, that this movie is a really interesting example of kind of like audience expectations based off of trailers because right. probably like much like you, when I saw the trailer originally, the it portrays the film as being almost a monster movie in a certain sense, yeah. or you assume that the infection leads to uh, people turning into zombies. And we see that in the dream sequences, which yeah. are Travis's kind of way of dealing with uh, different things. And I want to get more into the dreams later, but I think that my expectations were based off of the presentation of the trailer in that, oh, this is going to be about people becoming infected and then the infected run wild and try to kill people and whatnot. And I was underwhelmed originally because that's not this movie at all. And I think that it's very clear that people had certain expectations that this film didn't meet. And yet it just kind of speaks to how trailers are, can be a misperception of, or a misrepresentation rather of what the actual final product is. Because right. I was looking on uh, Rotten Tomatoes, not that uh, I try not to like pay attention to critic scores too much and kind of form my yeah. own opinions or hear out what specific people that I talk to about movies like about movies. But I mean, this movie has an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes based on 248 reviews, but then the audience score is a 44% based on 20,000 reviews or 20,000 votes. And I think that it's interesting, the stark contrast of those two scores. It's it's half of the audience score is half of what the critic score is. And I just think that had the trailer not presented the movie as an infection viral kind of zombie movie, which Mm. they use those dream sequences to sell that when the dream sequences are a very vital and important part of the movie, but they're not the whole movie. That's not right. what the movie is. And selling the movie on those scenes, I think does a kind of a disservice in terms of it skewers your idea of what the movie's about. And then it's a movie that it's a good thing. I suppose that you and I were able to appreciate it a lot more on a rewatch, but for people that are approaching it just based off of like the trailer, yeah, I can understand why some people are disappointed in what they get because they kind of go in expecting one thing and not everybody's as flexible on kind of accepting what they're getting, even if that's a contrast to what they were expecting. Right. Like, yeah, like you were saying, the trailer overhyped it in that sense of, oh, there's monsters in it and there's zombies looking people in it. And uh, that's kind of like, that's probably, that's basically the thought that I, I went in watching it the first time. Then you realize there's nothing like that. That just happens to be a, a part of a dream in a sequence that the kid has Travis. Um, but it's not like we don't actually see people walking around like dead zombies or monsters. It's completely opposite of that. And I think that's probably in the directors or the, the people that made the trailer that's in their fault. The, the reason they got that kind of review um, just to overhype it thinking maybe they thought their story, this, the story itself wasn't good enough to drag people in. So they had to kind of, stick out i guess is one of the better parts i would say because there's not much monster or we don't get to see anything like that's deformed in that sense other than the dream sequence so i feel like they kind of sold their best parts in the trailer and they kind of blew it like they kind of screwed themselves up with that yeah they kind of it i mean to be fair it's difficult to 
capture the morose nature of this overall film and it right. being very character driven, especially when, I mean, his Schultz's original film, uh, Krisha is supposed to be very good from what I've heard, but at the same time, that's a very kind of like niche film that not a lot of people knew about. So I guess a 24, the production company decided like, Hey, let's portray this movie as mass market appeal as we can, or kind of gravitating towards the largest audience, even if that gives certain people the wrong idea of what it is. Whereas I think people like you and I that can really appreciate more niche films and lesser known films that aren't all about kind of like larger than life storytelling and effects and things like that, especially on a rewatch, like it really resonates with us in a way that it's hard to sell in a trailer, you know, like, yeah, it's, it's difficult to portray, especially like at the time this movie came out, Walking Dead post-apocalyptic stories and all these things are so hot right now. Mm-hmm. You're going to hedge your bets if you're a production company. You're going to want to advertise it as something that might make some people think it's veering into one category when in actuality it's much more of a drama or a thriller aspect. But yeah. I'm really interested to hear what you thought about the way that the film in Schultz drops us into basically the midst of an apocalypse rather than the beginning. I feel like such a majority of post-apocalyptic movies and uh, even zombie stuff, uh, zombie movies and shows, they have a tendency to drop us in the beginning of an outbreak where we start to see like, oh, that person got bit, then that person got bit, and then it just spirals out of control. Whereas in this, we're kind of thrown into an apocalypse, possibly months, possibly years into it, and we're playing catch up basically for the whole movie. Yeah. I, I, I like the fact that like that we got thrown in, in something that's already been happening. Um, for me, I had, a, I had a couple of questions like how, obviously I want to know how it got started, but it kind of, it doesn't take too long to really get the hand of it's like, like, Oh, the hint that's like, it's a virus that's going around and uh, you can transmit it through contact. Um, it's kind of, I don't know, I guess the fact that we're in this COVID thing, like COVID situation lockdown, um, I think it kind of, it made the second time going around, like watching it, it made it, for me, it's easier to understand. It's like, oh, it's a virus. It's very simple. Like you get in contact with it, you will get sick. Um, there's not much to it. And just the, the fact that the side effects can be so aggressive where you you break out and you're basically slowly, slowly dying from the inside. Um, but overall, I thought it was a, uh, it was a good beginning. I, I enjoyed it. And I like the way it's filmed. Just the fact that it's in one specific environment inside the house, everything's locked down. It's, it's the house is very creaky because it's made out of woods. That's mm-hmm. that really helps with the effect of the fear. And like, especially when they walk at night and like they're walking through the house with a, with a lantern on. And it's like really like, I feel like every shadow that reflects off the wall, kind of like waiting for something to pop up, mm-hmm. which adds more to the intensity of the movie. Yeah, and I think that it's really important the way that Schultz starts the film off and that we see the 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 reality of the situation. And it's like, mm. they're out in the woods, cut off from everybody. This is what happens when you get sick. And we kind of get a harsh lesson in survival 101, as it were, in that we see the grandfather is sick. And we're kind of like playing catch up, essentially, in the beginning, because we don't know how they handle people being sick. We don't know if he's about to turn into something. Cause again, right. like in the trailer for the movie, I assumed, Oh, he's, he's got an hour or two at the most before he turns into a zombie or something. And then we get that him getting pushed in the wheelbarrow leading to the fire pit, basically where they end up putting a pillow over his head and shooting himself, shooting him in the head and then burning his body. And 
it's kind of just an incredibly bleak and sudden and shocking beginning to a movie that you understand the parameters of the entire world based off of that one scene. Like, this is the hard truth. If you want to live in this world, these are the types of things that you're going to have to do if you want to survive. And I mean, moments like that are so much more powerful than if we were given a montage or a shot of like a city that's on fire and people are kind of, we see like society crumbling. We don't need to see those scenes of society crumbling and people doing things that they normally wouldn't to survive because these people that we meet, the characters, like they're living proof of an apocalypse. Like they're also kind of nonchalant about what has to happen. And it's difficult for Travis to see that. And we see how it's difficult for him and his mother. Obviously they just lost their grandfather, but there's no kind of, hysterics and whatnot that might normally be involved in the scene where it's like, hey, we have to put this person down. One of the things you just said earlier, like, I really like the fact that we don't get to see the whole city melting down kind of thing situation, because I feel like that's so repetitive. Like you see it in every movie, like when there's a zombie outbreak, you see there's explosions in the Zadi, like Dawn of the Dead kind of thing. It's like, we've already seen that. So it's kind of cool that we, we jump straight into these people have already been locked down. They kind of are aware there's a virus. And I really like the fact how they like Travis is the main focus of like how he's dealing with the drama, like with the trauma mm-hmm. of seeing his grandpa die, seeing the fact that his dad killed his grandpa in front of him and they had to burn him. Um, it, I, that really, to me, it adds a lot to the, to the movie, just as the sense of a teenager dealing with such a traumatic event that's happening in his life and same with his with his mom. But, I feel like I really like the focus of that. Basically he is the main character. Like the dad's there as like a, I guess they're supporting actors and stuff, but like, I feel like he's the fact that we get to see from a teenage point of view, such a young mind, like he's just like such an innocent person that he has to witness all these like traumatic things. And I I think that really helped the movie out. Yeah. That perspective is really important too, because like you said, It would be very normal if we had kind of the male patriarch of a family and seeing the story through his eyes. We've seen that in every single zombie movie and show that's ever been made, essentially. Whereas in this, we're seeing it through the eyes of an adolescence, basically, and how he is trying, how his mentality changes to these horrible things that he sees. And we see what it's like to grow up in a world like this that's so ravaged and uh, it's uh, based upon survival. And you have right. to be the dominant force in every situation. And the moment you slip up is your death and the death of everybody and all of your loved ones. And mm-hmm. I think that decision is really important, especially when they introduce the new family, which is uh, Will and his uh, wife and son. It's important because it shows how this child who has been left in the woods with his parents for, it seems, months how he reacts to seeing other people and meeting other people. And it's not a normal situation, obviously. And so seeing how the adolescent experience is kind of influenced by such traumatic events and overall, like a very depressing reality that they live. I think that's really important. And it humanizes the movie in a way that like you had said earlier, it gives a lot more credence to the focus being on characters and the horrors within themselves rather than, some mysterious force roaming through the woods or a monster that breaks into the house. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it definitely it definitely helps. Like even to see like I know Andrew, the the kid that comes with uh, Kim and Will, which is the family they find. It's like he's so young, he doesn't have a clue of what's going on. But Trav Travis being the teenager who's already there, like he kind of he knows he's very well aware of what's going on and very well aware of the relationship and how careful they have to be when they're meeting someone else or another family, just because the dad Paul. He see, he's very in the protective side. He's you can tell like even throughout the whole movie, you see he's very defensive about everything. He questions everything because he all he cares about is family and 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 him, and himself. And that kind of like it kind of like you you can see throughout the movie that the relationship kind of start, starts distancing like mm-hmm. between Travis and Paul. It's like because. Travis I feel it's it's to me I get the idea it's like Travis is like why do we have to be mean to everybody we see why can't we just be friendly but at the same time Paul has this other like he's thinking of a of survival point of view not like Travis where he just wants to meet people and get to know people because he mm-hmm. hasn't really experienced that part of his life yet so yeah. I really I really enjoy that yeah it's a rude wake-up call and I mean their relationship is very much at the center center of the movie and it shows just how growing up in this world you're going to need those harsh realities and those harsh truths. Otherwise, again, when survival is the number one thing, you can't allow yourself any room for mistake or error. And so Paul, it's interesting on a rewatch, based on the way that Paul and his wife uh, handle all of these situations, his wife's name is uh, Sarah, played by Carmen uh, Ijogo, um, just the way that they react to all these situations, it's almost as if they've done everything before. And it yeah. leads me to believe like Will is not the first person that tries to break into their house. Like right. they know exactly what to do. They know exactly how they handle that. Whether and they, I mean, they have that quarantine room out in the front of the house, but then they also even know like, oh, we're going to go tie him up to a tree and check in on him in a day. And we even see Paul is watch when he ties Will to the tree, he watches him through the peephole in the house for a day, I believe. Mm-hmm. And at first I was like, yeah, he wants to see if he's infected or not. But then also I was realizing like he wants to see if he is tr- telling the truth about being alone because perhaps right. he told them, oh, I'm not with anybody. And then a day later, three of his buddies show up and try to untie him so they can try to take over the house again. Like mm-hmm. that little that decision for Paul to do that struck me in a new way that shows this is not their first kind of like survival rodeo. And yeah. his being so uh, conflicted about trusting people and being very, being very cautious about everybody he meets, it has to stem from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Nobody is kind of like this survivalist expert in how to handle an apocalypse based off of pure instinct unless they've had to deal with this situation before or in a way that had negative ramifications in the past. And they obviously learn real quick when the stakes are that high, you can't make those mistakes more than once. Right. And now that you bring that up, I didn't think about the fact that they tied him. I thought they tied him, uh, tied Will up to the pole just, just because of the virus protocol, mm-hmm. like a virus protocol. I didn't, I didn't really think about it. Oh, maybe someone would have come to help him out. I would, I didn't even think of that. I didn't cross my mind about it. But now that I think about it, yeah, it makes sense. Like he, you can definitely tell that this is not their first rodeo when they come in contact with someone else during these dangerous times. And uh, yeah, you can tell that uh, Paul has definitely killed people before just the way he reacts like he doesn't hesitate to like he'll shoot you if he needs to mm-hmm. um, at the same time like you definitely get the sense of like Sarah wasn't she wasn't like she's not in for helping like she's not in for killing people she she'd rather talk it out 
rather than being able to harm someone else. And she is, I guess, more of the nicer person in the relationship, the nicer uh, part of the couple. Um, but yeah, I, I really, I enjoyed Paul. Paul's character is probably one of my favorite characters just because he has like this this like father figure that he has to protect his family and he knows like he's just he's just very aggressive in everything he does and he's mm-hmm. and there's parts where you can see once will comes into the family he kind of like questioned will will and like the relationship between will and travis where will is showing him how to cut wood and he kind of like it seems like i get the vibe that he's kind of like jealous that he didn't get to experience that with travis mm-hmm. where like that growing moment where you can see like he's teaching him and you can tell that travis is having fun and he's kind of like not involved in that and that that definitely kind of showed like he's very distancing because he's so always thinking about survival that he kind of loses that connection with Travis. Right. Yeah. And I think that again, like Paul and Travis's relationship and how that contrasts to Will and Travis's relationship, like Will is very much more of the subdued person in terms of just Mm -hmm. the way that he emotes, the way he deals with situations and things like that compared to Egerton's character, um, Paul, who is very reactive to everything. And he's very like, He's not even one zero to a hundred. He's like zero to five thousand essentially. Where yeah. He just goes into like over alert mode. This is a situation that needs to get handled now. We can't take any chances. And that contrast, I think, is really important because it shows kind of what Will, or rather what Travis is looking for in a mentor. Travis being mm-hmm. an adolescent, he wants the more low-key, relatable person that treats this as this is not the end all be all of our existence. Whereas his father realizes, and probably he realizes this, but it's almost to a fault of his relationship and how it's viewed with the family. It is all about survival. And the second you forget that, you're going to end up like grandpa and we're going to be putting you in a wheelbarrow. Like, it's just the very kind of the stark reality of that, um, Mm. which I think the film does really well. And it, it lends this idea that the narrative is so well developed and it focuses on the character relationships in a way that, you can't really sell that in a trailer, not to like keep bringing yeah. it back to the trailer of the movie, but this is one of those movies that I hold up as an example of a film that you absolutely should not watch the trailer before watching it. Um, yeah, it's it just it doesn't give you an it doesn't give you an, an accurate representation of the final product, but also I don't know my my weird brain. I start to like piece together certain scenes while I'm watching the movie that were in the trailer. And I'm just, and it's like all I can focus on. And I'm like, oh, that was from the trailer. How do you, how is this going to play out in the narrative and things like that? But it is very much uh, a film that is not sold best in a 90 second trailer. But um, let's get into some of like the dreams because the dreams play such an important aspect of the overall atmosphere and the tone of the movie in a way that Mm -hmm. I placed a much greater emphasis on, on a rewatch than I did originally. Um, that being yeah. like the film is cut up at certain periods where Travis at night has these dreams that are either otherworldly or they're just kind of representation of how he is feeling at that given moment. So how did you, yeah. what did you think about the role that dreams play in this? I thought, I mean, they were very important to me at least because we get to see more of Travis and how he's dealing with this whole trauma of being in being locked down and there's a virus. And I feel like every every dream that he had was based on that moment because we kind of get to see like once Will comes in, like he his first dream was his dad or his grandpa becoming sick and becoming almost this monster like thing. And then it's like once Will and his family, Kim and Andrew come in the house, he has a dream 
of him of Travis sleeping with Kim. And it's like I feel like he's kind of like dealing with the trauma of meeting this is the first, it seems like their first couple that they bring into the house. And he's a teenager mind. His I'm sure his hormones are going like crazy. Yeah. And it's like, he's having, basically, he's like relating to every situation that's ha- happening in the moment. So it kind of like, it shows you like play by play. Every time something happens, it's like he has a certain negative dream attached to it, which I really like. I think it really emphasizes like, it, it brings more of like Travis, it, he kind of like, he's on his own world that really shows that he's like, having a really hard time dealing with the fact that there's a new family. His grandpa just got killed. He saw his dad kill his grandpa. And it's just like a lot of trauma that happens in his life. Yeah. And I think it's really important again, to your point about the adolescence thing and yeah, adolescence, like you have crazy hormones going on, you're still developing in certain ways. And it's interesting getting into the mindset of a character like that in that age and how he's processing everything around him through dreams mm-hmm. and we get to see not only his fears, but also his desires. Like he sees right. Kim, he finds her attractive. He's right. very, he is not really flirty with her when they meet in the kitchen at late at night, but mm-hmm. you can tell there's an attraction there and right. he, and he feels like he wants to say something, but he's so awkward and uncomfortable around women <laughs> or just other people in general that, and obviously she has a son with another man, but you can tell that attraction is there. And yet, even in a film, in a dream that is about him having sex with her, there still is that overlying thing that kind of rules their life. And that's fear. That's fear yeah. of what is going to happen to you if you get infected. And it's interesting how his brain creates this recurring association with being sick and that being like black goo, essentially, yeah. where she's on top of him and they're making out. And then she pulls her head back and this black goo from her mouth starts dripping into his mouth. And then we see like later on in the film, he sees that his hands are covered in black goo in another, uh, another dream. And even his grandfather, when his grandfather shows up in a dream as a, uh, as a zombie, essentially, Mm -hmm. he's leaking black glue from his eyes. His eyes are black, uh, completely blacked out and everything. And it's just interesting to see how no matter what you're thinking about in this time period, and where this event is happening, like it's all ruled by fear. And it kind of bleeds into that idea that you mentioned early on. It's not about the monsters outside. It's about more about like internal monsters that are formed through fear. Right. And it also, it feels like it goes to show how like strong the mind is like to the sense where it's like, it's over uh, dramatic or dramatizing this virus where it's like, there's no black goo actually comes out of you. Like there's no black goo coming out of your mouth when you're dying. Like you're just sick with a virus. You get like breakout, your skin breaks out and you just die. It's not like you're going to be like dripping blood or whatever goo coming out of your mouth. It's like, and you can also, it kind of like, to me, it shows like your mind, you create the fear in your head of how, how, how scary this virus really is. It's all up to you and in your brain. Yeah. And a way that I think this movie does a really fantastic job of grounding itself in reality, obviously the premise of there being a virus, a killer virus out there is not that far fetched, but I think the way that it really humanizes the story for me and makes it very relatable. And it's, it's a pretty, I mean, maybe this is just me being cynical, but the film really focuses on the idea that you can't trust anybody in the film. Like again, part of being dropped into this apocalypse months or years into it is that we don't know anything about anybody. We only know what we see. Essentially we can make assumptions and we can kind of feed off of little bits of information. And yet at the end of the day, we really don't know. So the idea that we know who the good guy quote unquote is in this movie is not really accurate. 
Again, yeah. we, I would like, I assume Travis is being portrayed as being the, for lack of a better word, like the pure one. He's very innocent in a lot of ways. Yeah. He's a child in a world that is ravaged by death and violence. And yet we don't know anything about his family. So just right. because he seems like he's got good intentions and he's friendly and wants to meet new people and all of these things and wants to be accepting, we don't know anything about his parents. And that is never more apparent than when Will shows up and Will breaks into the house. He says he claims he doesn't know anybody lives there. And yet we don't know if he has other people with him in the woods and whatnot. And we even see like during the interrogation scene when uh, Paul straps him to the tree and he's like interrogating him with rapid fire lightning round questions. He, Will has an answer for everything right away. Right. But then we start to see later on how some of those answers that he gave start to fall to the wayside in term and it presents a lot of doubt that doesn't necessarily lend a credence to this idea that, oh yeah, well, they live with us now. We can trust them. Um, yeah. I think that ambush scene is the first real instance of that. What did you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, that was definitely a, a good scene. And that also is a scene where you can tell, like, like you were saying earlier, like no one's innocent, like in this world, like it really all depends on which side you're looking at from, but no one's innocent. Like everybody has their nasty side, but in that ambush scene, you really get to see like, what kind of person Paul and Will is and how completely different they are because Paul is the whole time thinking about survival. I got to kill them before they kill me. Will is thinking, well, maybe we can get some information out of these guys. Don't kill them. And obviously Paul has a gun. So he's the first one to, to kill all, all, both of them. And it's like, you really can tell that they, that's when I, for me, at least that's when it hit me. Like they're two completely different mindsets in their in this survival scenario and like one of them wanted to get more information to see if there was more people alive while the other one just rather be isolated and survival and whoever comes near my house i'm killing them so that i thought that was a really good scene just to really put in perspective the kind of survival mentality that was in this world that, that they live in so that's a really interesting point that you made because i think this is part of the genius of the film that really bleeds into the idea that you can't trust anyone so the way that you interpreted it, I interpreted it a little differently is that I agree. Paul is only thinking about his family, his survival and his family's survival. He knows that if he dies, more than likely his family's going to end up dying as a result yeah. of that. Um, and while he is willing to like kill those people that ambush them, at the same time, I think I read more into Will's reaction when Paul executes that guy in that he he will's reaction is like why did you do that and it's so over the top and paul reads into that and he says do you know these guys and he starts accusing will of like is this the guy are these the guys that were with you when you tried to break into my house is this like a scouting party and it creates that doubt and yeah. yet will has an explanation right away like you said his explanation is we could have gotten information out of them and i think there's enough reasonable doubt there that it raises the question are these guys working with Will or is Will was re Will really trying just to get information out of them? And right. I love that we don't get any concrete answers on anything, essentially. Mm -hmm. And that reasonable doubt, I think it makes the film especially enjoyable for me on a rewatch in that I read into things more and it shows there is a complexity to this world that you probably don't pick up on initially on a first watch. There's the idea that it's a survival movie in the apocalypse. But in rewatching it and realizing, hey, I have all these variables, but there's multiple outcomes and explanations for things. It just makes it that much more of an emphasis on surviving and you can only trust your family. And we even hear Will say that at one point to Travis, or rather it was Paul who said that to Travis. He's like, 
I don't care if these people are living with us. I don't care if they seem friendly. You can only trust your family. And I think that scene is a big uh, indication of that kind of mentality that it comes out later in the film, like when they break out the whiskey and Mm -hmm. he starts asking and Paul starts asking Will about his family. And Will says like, yeah, I'm a single, uh, single child. And then there's that oh fuck moment because you see Paul's face and he's like, I thought you said you had a brother. Yeah. And then he's like, oh, yeah, well, I was staying with my wife's family and the, my brother-in-law. And he kind of has this very quick remedy to this mm-hmm. oh fuck moment where did he just get trapped in a lie? Yeah. But then he covers it up so quickly and it might not even be a cover up. It might be, yeah, it was a slip of the tongue. But at the same time, it's so... It, the it's not overt that he's lying and it's never proven that he's lying. Perhaps, I mean, it made me think like if I was strapped to a tree and somebody had a gun on me and was saying like the first wrong answer you give, I'm going to blow your head off. Yeah. I might make up a lie just to tell them what they want to hear. Or oh, yeah. I might make a slip up like that and refer to somebody as my brother instead of my brother-in-law. You know what I mean? Right. Like yeah. the lie that he potentially gets caught in is not so w- big that it kind of just flips our entire idea of what's happening on its head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean that, that scene also when they were talking and drinking whiskey, kind of like you kind of see like you were saying, like how quick on his feet will is to like respond. And like, there's, it seems like you're kind of nervous. Cause like, there's a, obviously Paul just questions them while, while they're in the house the whole time. They're like, you still can't trust them. We've only known them for 24 hours or whatever but it's like he's waiting for someone to slip up to give him a reason to kill them because i don't think i've had the whole time i had a feeling that paul did not want them in there so he's kind of like trying to find an excuse for them to go away and i feel like that's that's basically that was probably one of the moments where during that scene it was like yeah that could have that could have been the time where where paul could have just kind of been like all right you guys have to go or i'm gonna kill you but the fact that Will was so quick on his feet to respond, oh, my stepbrother, uh, that kind of gave him more time, I guess, to survive. And now that I think about it, it's like, that. I feel like those two people that they killed were probably with Will, which made sense if he said he was a single brother or he's a single son, and then he, but his stepbrother. And I feel like the reason maybe he didn't want to kill those two people was because they were with him, their relatives. So yeah, that, that kind of, at least right now, kind of tied in for me in, the, in, in thinking about it. Yeah, I mean- their relation this is a world where relationships are built around opportunity for resources essentially mm-hmm. like right. these people are not living with one another because they necessarily like each other they're living out of it for the necessity of you have something i need you i have something you need kind of thing and i mean at one point sarah says oh well they could help us defend this place okay but that's not really a reason why they're going to live together cuz it's like hey we have guns they right. have guns. It's not that big of a deal. But in terms of just like, I I think it is a very interesting foundation of a relationship and it being that shaky where as soon as somebody has something more than what I have, that's going to make things uncomfortable. Or yeah. as soon as a small little conflict comes up that could sprout into a much bigger conflict, like mm-hmm. we, the first instinct these people have is to cut ties. And right. as we learn later on, cutting ties has some pretty drastic uh, results in it. Also, one of the little things from that scene, I don't know if you picked up on it, was when Paul offers Will the whiskey, he yeah. says, uh, Will sees the bottle and he says, oh, no, no, that's not necessary. And then Paul says, what, you don't drink? And Will just responds like, I do. And that uh-huh. is such a subtle moment, but I kind of imp- implied from that or inferred from that rather that Will is an alcoholic. Right. In that, because 
especially when he takes a sip of that and he's like, yeah. oh, that, and he kind of like moans almost. And he's uh-huh, like, oh, yeah. that's so smooth. And it was like, I have a feeling that if you're living in apocalypse and you haven't been drinking regularly, you're not going to view any alcohol as smooth, really. Right. Just, yeah. I mean, just as somebody that drinks pretty frequently, it, I can't imagine me going, like, if I go a month or two without drinking, the first thing I think when I have whiskey neat Oof. is not, oh, that's yeah. so smooth. Like, it's more, it's harsher to it because you're not used to it. So. Right. That idea of him saying it's so smooth, I think, speaks to his character probably having some sort of like a chemical imbalance. Mm-hmm. And not that like it's an indictment on people that might be alcoholics or anything like that. But I think it just proves that his character has layers to him that he's not willing to reveal. And he has certain secrets to him that he's not yeah. willing to reveal. And even if it's by all accounts an inconsequential one, like it doesn't matter. He's an alcoholic. It doesn't affect the narrative. It doesn't affect mm-hmm. his relationships with these characters. I do think it shows that he has a capacity for hiding things and for hiding and for having secrets. I think it's interesting that his alcoholism never comes up during the course of his kind of world uh, or his life experiences that he brings up. Like, I feel like that's a pretty important milestone to call yourself an alcoholic. You probably have to have some sort of bottoming event or rock bottom. And so it's just interesting to me that it doesn't come up. And yet from his body language and some of the small comments he makes, his character just has the capacity for secrets, even if we don't get concrete answers on what those secrets may or may not be. Right. I feel like, yeah, like you were saying, like, well, is being honest to a certain extent with Paul, but he's only given him the information that Paul wants. He's not willing to open up more to him, which mm-hmm. kind of makes the relationship more tense to a certain point because Paul is really questioning him the whole time. Like he's like, I'm not sure if I can fully trust this guy. Like he just doesn't see the chemistry there, but yeah, we definitely, definitely get that feeling. At least for me, I, I get the feeling it's like, Will was be, was giving him honest response to a certain extent. He wasn't being fully honest with Paul, but he was just being honest enough to where he can get his family to safety, which right. was his priority. But yeah, definitely that, that scene was pretty, uh, that kind of like, kind of like, I get raised an eyebrow too. It's like, well, what's, what else is he not telling him? Like, I'm curious. It's like, well, does, what kind of an alcoholic is he? Does he get very aggressive when he drinks or what? Mm-hmm. You know, that's what, I don't know. I was curious about that too, but I'm kind of glad that they didn't go that, that route because it, because I feel like the story could have gone out of, out of hand in that sense. Yeah. And again, it doesn't really comment. It, it doesn't become a part of the narrative. Like alcoholism mm-hmm. doesn't become the narrative. It doesn't become a narrative kind of tool that we've seen before where, somebody gets shit faced and says one too many things they shouldn't have, or they're like have an extreme reaction that makes them violent. Mm-hmm. Whereas uncertainty in and of itself of other people, I think is basically like the disease, the real disease of the movie. And that once people begin to become uncertain of one another and that paranoia sets in, we see how that unravels things overall. Yeah. It's more about a feeling or an emotion unraveling these characters in their perceived sanctuary that they're living in in the woods by themselves. Whereas instead of a major plot event, because just because the little boy is coughing, I mean, we'll get into like the door in a minute, but the, just in hearing the little boy coughing enough doubt and uncertainty has been set in everybody's minds that that kid is sick. And we never get clarification that the boy is sick right? until the very end of the movie. I mean, like the characters themselves have no, concrete evidence of anything. And so just seeing how, if the groundwork of that paranoia and uncertainty wasn't laid, would they be reading into those 
actions and those events or that uh, behavior nearly as much. But um, so what did you think of the door? Yeah, that that was, I feel like every scene that is filmed on that hallway is just so creepy. It's just like, because yeah. like every time they walk down the hallway, you hear the creaking of the floor because everything's made out of wood. And, and it's like, I, when I think of that red door, I think of the, um, the conjuring. There's like, like mm-hmm. once they go into this, like, like the red door, I think it's part of the first movie uh, where they go into the other world. And it's like this creep, like behind the red door, kind of creepy thing that is behind the red door. That's what I thought about the whole time I was watching. I was like, dude, there's like something scary behind that door. Like there's some kind of demon thing. But I think like that, that's those scenes, even like in the beginning when they kind of, when Will first breaks in and you get the, the, the shot, like down the hallway, it's kind of, it makes it seem so long, but it's Mm -hmm. not really that long of a walk, but just the way it's filmed, they do such a great job at really making such a small scene so intense because you can hear the, every noise echoes because the house is locked in and all the windows are shut. So everything echoes, everything's made out of wood. So you can hear every equipment that gets put on the floor or something gets thrown on the floor when Will's going through the, um, through the, uh, I guess, supply room or something. They're like kind of, mm-hmm. um, he's kind of looking for stuff to get. But that that scene like near the end where uh, Travis finds the door open, I thought that was like, I was honestly at that point, first time watching, I was like ready for some zombie to break through that door. Right. And and we don't really get to see that. And, and I kind of like how it evolves from there. Like, cause then he wakes up Paul and Sarah and then they kind of like, they're trying to figure out well what what broke in and how did the door get got open and I really I just I don't know I like that it really that scene gets very intensified although it's such a minor um, filming part of it like it's just it's literally just a hallway but the way it's filmed it's such a great job at making the the scene so intense yeah it is really all about the presentation of it and mm-hmm. I agree and it's funny you mentioned the Conjuring it made the door made me think of uh, the Haunting of Hill House the TV series oh, yeah, I yeah. believe the door that they spend all season trying to get into is a red door as well. But mm. it kind of just, it's interesting that the only color in that house is the red door. And yeah. historically in horror movies or books or whatever, it's the the color red is like an, it's a, like the scarlet letter, essentially. It's like an omen right. for something evil, obviously it being red and blood and whatnot. But mm-hmm. it's interesting that the door represents death essentially. And that once yeah. the door is opened unexpectedly, it's kind of like death is being brought into the house, which right. leads to the conclusion, which has some deadly, uh, deadly consequences, which we learn about. But I think you're right in that it's portrayed in those dream sequences and they do shoot that hallway in a very dreamlike manner. Like you said, mm-hmm. in reality, it's not that long of a hallway. That wouldn't make any sense. Nobody would make a house like that. But right. the way that it's filmed in the dream sequences, it looks like this almost never ending hallway. And yeah it comes back to just the way that the overall film is really lit and that we see it's mostly shadows inside, obviously. And Mm -hmm. the only light that we see and are reliant on is lanterns and flashlights. And just the idea that this door is the only thing that's keeping all of the evil away from these people for a majority of the film. And then we discover it's been open and yet there's nobody there. That is probably one of the scariest moments of the film for me in that we see our suspicion and paranoia or the character's suspicion and paranoia is really found. Like later we see the next scene is them talking at the dinner table and we start accusing one another of like, who could have unlocked the door? And it's like, oh, the little boy was sleepwalking. He could have, he doesn't sleepwalk. Oh, well, I found him in this room or whatever. It's like, yeah, but he can't reach the locks. And so it had to have been an adult at that point. 
And then right. up until that point, it's only five people. And right. my perception of it, of the end of the film kind of bled into the uh, role the dreams play. Like I started to think, is this just a nightmare that yeah. Travis is having? Because it's like the worst thing that could ever happen is the door being open and people getting in. And yet there's no clear cut answer. And right. that goes into the rest of the film where the film is not very concerned with giving concrete answers. And so in not having a clear cut answer to that, like, oh, it was Will, it was Travis, it was whoever, it kind of just lends the idea that this is a dangerous place and you cannot trust anyone. Right. Yeah. No, those that that connection with the dreams that I was also trying to figure out, like whether I wonder if he was actually dreaming or was he actually sleepwalking? Because like there's scenes where he goes outside in the woods and and I was honestly hoping to because there's one scene where he goes outside and he finds the gun on the on the on the grass or on the dirt. Yeah. And he kind of like points at something. He hears a noise in the, in the uh, forest and he points at it and he's like in shock. So I was I was really honestly hoping to see what what he he saw or I, I wish it would have been revealed at the end of the movie or something. But for me, it was like I was in the dream sequence. I was like, well, is he really dreaming? There's certain scenes where it's like he was you can tell he's dreaming. But like for me, when he went outside, I wonder if that was him sleepwalking and not realizing that he was sleepwalking. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, w- I think that would have added more more of a scare to it. At least for me, it's like where he wakes up and there's dirt on his foot because he was sleepwalking outside and like he didn't know it. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> that whole like door sequence, I thought was very, very intense because it also builds even more intense like an intense relationship between the two families like well you're blaming my kid but my kid is not old enough or he's not tall enough to open the door and it's like well paul is definitely i feel like at that point paul is definitely taken to a level a thousand just like questioning them like now it's like i feel like they have to go like there's no at this point there's no trust between them and you can tell like paul's kind of like this is probably their last day because obviously after that it kind of goes downhill but yeah you definitely for me paul is like Paul is almost like a reminder of like safety first kind of thing throughout mm-hmm. the whole movie. And it's like, as soon as you question it, like he questioned himself questioning them, but now it's like, I can't question them anymore. Like I have to make a move kind of thing. So that's kind of where it kind of leads up and to the next, or I guess the final scene se- sequence, I guess. Yeah. I mean, let's get into that ending because it's a, it's a pretty heavy ending. And I think, yeah. uh, I think I texted you, when you suggested we watch this and I was like, yeah, I'm down for a rewatch. I mean, I just, I hope you pour yourself a strong drink. Cause yeah, I, from what I remembered and what was confirmed on a rewatch, like it's an incredibly fucked up ending where mm-hmm. yeah. we see the will and his family want to leave. And we assume that the little boy is sick just because right. he's coughing and we see the extremes that Paul and his family go to in reacting to that. And so mm-hmm. we get a little bit of a standoff and then will gets knocked out. And get and he almost beats uh, Paul to death, and so yeah. Sarah shoots Sarah shoots him, killing him. But then Will's family runs off, and then yeah. Paul chases after them and shoots. And you assume he shoots Riley Cano's character, and yet the worst case fucking scenario is <laughs> yeah. where he misses her and kills the kid. Yeah. And it's just like this horrific gut punch moment that before you even see the body lying there and you, it doesn't obviously it doesn't show you anything. It just shows the right. little boy, but lying there, you yeah. just hearing Riley Cano screaming. Yeah. Is the most disturbing part of the movie for me, especially when mm-hmm. it's, we see Paul's reaction to what he's done. Like when he realizes, Oh shit, yeah. I missed. Or did he even really miss? Because if you're right. shooting at somebody carrying a kid, like there's only one out- outcome, but right. seeing his realization of what he did, 
and him being like horrified with himself. But then he snaps out of that after like three or four seconds and he just guns down Riley Cano after that. And yeah. it just shows he takes everything to the extreme in terms of the survival of his family, as it were. Yeah, that scene was intense. I thought that that I kind of like I think uh, Riley really sold that scene for me. It was like shit like she's feeling like pain. Her kid got killed like that's that's like pain. You can tell in her cry the way she her performance was great in that scene. Yeah. I thought um, she's she really sells the fact that her child just got shot. And at that moment, I, I like like I said, like you were saying, like Paul, it kind of just shoots her. But like he has a headstand moment of like. I, I kind of got the like the feeling of like he's like what have I become kind of thing mm-hmm. where it's like he shot the kid I don't know if that was his intent we don't know if that's his intention or not but it's like holy shit I killed a little baby here and it's like at this at that point he's kind of like frozen really thinking about like shit what do I do next should I kill the mother or not and it kind of it comes down to like yeah I mean she's already suffering because I thought that to myself I'm like the mother's already suffering there's nothing good that's going to come out of this you right. killed her husband and her kid at this point you might as well just kill her like that's that was my thought and I was like and I f- you can tell that Paul at that point was like, what have I become? Because even after that, you can tell that Paul is just completely changed man in that sense. Like he really took that to heart, the fact that he killed the kid. And I guess maybe he put himself in, in shoes of imagining his son dying, Travis. And that kind of really like hit him. And and I thought that was that was a crazy ending for a movie that was the fact that it was to say it was slow, but it was more of like character relationship building to get mm-hmm. to that point of the extreme. I thought it was a great ending for it. Riley Cano does not have a massive role in a majority of the film. She has little mm-hmm. mo- moments of dialogue and whatnot. And we have that great scene with uh, Travis when they meet in the kitchen. But yeah. she doesn't have a massive scene in the movie other than the ending. And she really does give it her all. And she sells that ending to the point that that scene is not the same scene unless it's her with that scream and that kind of like right. guttural pleading and grief and whatnot. And, it really just does capture the overall intensity and unrelenting nature of the movie in that the world has consequences now and the consequences are nothing but extreme. There's no, there's no half consequences, which results in there being characters that can't afford to take any half measures. You can't let these people go. They're going to bring other people back or they're going to risk us getting infected or killed. So it shows that there is that contrast between Paul and his son where Paul is the one that's willing to do certain things. And Travis is the one that is like, hey, these could be good people. We should give them the benefit of the doubt, this and that. And it just shows what happens when you give people the benefit of the doubt. And I mean, nobody learns that. Well, in terms of Paul's immediate family, nobody learns that harder than Travis, who after having all of these dreams of him becoming sick, ends up becoming sick himself in real life. That was that that also was a pretty pretty rough one cuz you yeah. get to see like we get to see when he's laying in bed from his point of view he's like his vision is blurry he's like he can see his mom and like she's Sarah's talking to him and he's kind of like out of it mm-hmm. and she kind of talks talks to him like just just go to sleep kind of like stop fighting it. Yeah. And I, I thought that was pretty sad to to have your I don't know feel putting yourself in Sarah's shoes it's like having your kid die before you, I think it's probably the worst thing that could happen in your life. And to tell them like, it's okay to like, just die. Like, it's fine. Like, I think that's probably the roughest thing you could do. Yeah. And it shows just things coming full circle because that's how the movie begins, right? Right. Grandpa and Sarah says the same thing. And to see that happen to Travis, obviously, if it's an elderly person, they're like in their 80s, you don't want anybody to die. But it's a little more expected 
You know what yeah. I mean? It's like, hey, you can look back and say, oh, it's un obviously unfortunate they died. And yet they were able to live this long life filled with experiences and memories and all these things. Mm -hmm. Whereas the protagonist of the film is, is an adolescent. And again, yeah. like you said, the added pain of a parent bearing their child, which is, I would assume, the worst thing imaginable, which is not yeah. natural in the grand scheme of things, knock on wood. Um, it's something that really kind of solidifies just the morose, unforgiving nature of this world that Schultz has created makes this post-apocalyptic setting really stick in a way that I don't think necessarily does with a lot of post-apocalyptic movies where it's like I, the easy example is like The Walking Dead or whatever. And it's yeah. like that kind of just feels like a setting that has people in it that are fighting zombies and fighting mm -hmm. other people. Whereas this, it really is death is the antagonist and it's a palpable sense of death and grief, which... I think comes across so well because Schultz said that he wrote this movie in I think three days while he was grieving the loss of his father and Ooh, yeah. that really, which is insane. And yeah. it's very telling though, that those emotions he was feeling, he was able to translate to the page in a way that I think really comes across and makes that grief and pain very palpable um, yeah. in a way that is not easy. Like we see, how many movies do we see about family dramas where families experience loss and we're like, okay, that just, that signifies the end of this character. Whereas mm. in this film, like it's a draining movie and it's yeah. emotionally draining. Like I said earlier, I wanted to watch his uh, first film, uh, Krisha, which is also streaming on Netflix. And I decided I'm going to wait at least a week before I watch it because <laughs> yeah. like I, I had two whiskeys while I was watching this. Cause I was just like, <laughs> oh, fuck, this is just so rough and depressing. And yet yeah. it's so affecting in a way that, not a lot of post-apocalyptic movies are. I mean, our COVID situation notwithstanding, it's mm -hmm. just, it's a very, very bleak and disturbing film, which not everybody enjoys those elements of a film, but yeah. I would rather have a film that leaves me feeling, I'm so affected by it that I feel differently about it rather than yeah. kind of just the towing the line apocalypse movie. Yeah, I feel like they, the director does such a good job at making this movie as realistic of a, what a zombie apocalypse would be in real life. I think that's what, that's why kind of like, it makes it more creepy. Like if there was an, an apocalypse of some sort, I feel like this would be it. Like this virus that like, you don't know how, like, I mean, I guess they know because they touch someone that's already sick, but like, you don't really know how it travels. Like, at least, at least in the movie, we don't really know how it gets there. Like how to, like we find out that the dog gets sick and like, I, I guess someone kills the dog and it brings mm -hmm. it into the house, but it's like, what? Well, there's like so much more to that. I mean, that like the fact that the dog ran after something that we, we don't really see, we don't get to see. Is it, well, is it a monster or is it a human being? What is it? Like what, what's with the virus, you know? And like, there's so many questions that I have that I kind of left like about the movie that's kind of just left out there, which makes it even more intense for me. At least the movie, yeah. it's like, they don't explain things. It's like shit. And I'm curious about this. I wish they would explain it, but at the same time, I, I'm glad they didn't because it makes the movie that much better because yeah. there's so minimal information about what the virus is and how it really affects them and how you can become um, affected by it. And it's just like that fact that there's so many questions about it for me, it's, it makes it that much better. The older I get, the less answers I want. Yeah. Like I read stuff online and from people that are just like, went to go see it. This doesn't explain anything. I've got all these questions and it's like, yeah, a movie that doesn't answer your questions when it's not designed to make you question things really. Yeah, yeah. that's kind of shitty. 
But in this film, it's so imperative that we don't understand everything. And there's that mm-hmm. doubt. And I mean, no example is clearer of that than when uh, after they're ambushed, he's talk- uh, Paul is talking to Sarah and she's like, well, were those men tracking us or did they see the smoke from the fire when you lit grandpa yeah. on fire? And you're like, oh shit, I didn't even think of that. Right. And yet that's a perfect example of something that is very plausible. It's A or B, right? It's either mm-hmm. they're with Will and Will is lying about them being his friends and they were looking to hunt those uh, the people down to take over their home. Or is it, hey, they're scavengers just like us that saw the smoke and it led them to our house or to right. our general area? Because uh, that's one of the main points of contention is Paul says, you traveled for 80 miles and or whatever and didn't see anybody. And all of a sudden these guys are right near my house. And it's right. like, oh, maybe Will did tell them where they were going or whatever. Or maybe they saw the fire from, because it's, it's, um, right. it's black smoke. It's not white smoke. Right. So, hey, you could see that from miles away. Perhaps they saw it yeah. and they're heading in that direction. So the movie not answering a lot of our questions. And I have, <laughs> I did see online, there's, that scene where we see the dog and it's barking, but we can't see what it's barking at. Yeah. Apparently somebody slowed down the footage and zoomed in. Apparently you can see a body moving behind a tree out in the far distance, but, and they said, Oh, that proves there's somebody there. I've read another theory that it's just a crew member. Oh, (laughs) there's a crew member out in the middle of the woods. That's signaling to the dog to bark and have that reaction because something has to do that. But Right. I think that regardless of that, whether it is a crew member or it's supposed to be somebody stalking mm-hmm. them, Schultz captures this idea that the woods are so thick and vast that yeah. even if there isn't somebody there, staring out into the wilderness like that and thinking there's something there can be scarier. Like right. a anecdote for me is my grandparents live out in the woods in the country and I go there like every <laughs> year. And it's one of those things where you look out into the acres and acres of heavily wooded areas and i can't help maybe it's like my horror centric brain but (laughs) i can't help but stare into the tree line and just expect to see somebody hiding there standing behind a tree yeah especially at night like my grandfather installed floodlights so when you turn on the floodlights and it goes into the woods and you're just staring into the woods i expect to see a mask or a face half the time and it's like (laughs) obviously there never is going to be somebody there but capturing the woods in that way that is relatable to anybody that has ever been in the woods, I think is the scariest element of this film. And it's scarier than if there's a monster, like Schultz made a very clear decision early on in the movie or for the movie overall, there aren't monsters. The emphasis is people and no scene is more apparent of that kind of grief and it being more relatable to being a person than watching the grandfather die. Right. Seeing him, being put down essentially instead of him turning into this mutant zombie that tries to rip everybody apart. Like you're never going to see a zombie mutant rip somebody apart. Right. You might be faced with a situation, knock on wood, where you have to watch an elderly person die like that. Or Mm -hmm. let me rephrase that seeing them struggling so heavily that the decision is, is that you're going to have to euthanize them essentially. Yeah. Hopefully not with a pillow and a gun in the woods, but something (laughs) a little more uh, medically sound, but I just found that to be super palpable and disturbing in a way that I don't think a lot of horror films are able to be that affecting in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah, I think it also goes with the story too, the way that the story is uh, is written. But for me, I didn't understand why they would burn the body and you just bury the body. I mean, if it's a virus, 
Like, I don't understand what the effect of burning. That's That was my one question about it. It's like, well, why would you burn the body if you're creating smoke? You're kind of showing people that are out there, whoever's left, that you're there's life there and something's burning. So they're going to go check it out. For me, it was like, well, you could have just buried the body. It wouldn't have made a difference. At least that's what I thought. But I, yeah, that's, that was my one question, that, or I guess my one concern with the movie. It's like, why did you burn? Why did you burn the body instead of burying it? Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's a it's a thing in a lot of the vi- like virus or zombie movies where you have to burn the bodies to kill off the infection. Mm. But like you said, there's that idea that they're in the middle of the woods, starting a massive fucking bonfire. Yeah, could potentially set the woods on fire, and right, it's going to signal to people that there's people living there, and. Mm. The idea that they wouldn't just wheel him a couple extra hundred feet away from the house, I feel yeah. like it's not that much effort. You could just That's bury true. him very, very far away from the house. I get they want to live in this land, but yeah. if you bury him super far away from the house, you don't have to worry about traipsing around a potentially infected corpse or anything like that. I mean, right. I understand why they do that, but at the same time, it might maybe it speaks to inexperience with survival skills like they are they are experienced and we see that in how they deal with will breaking in and the kind of protocol for quarantine and all these things and yet maybe there's facets of this surviving in a new world that they haven't completely grasped or mastered yet like this is the first family member that they've had to bury i would assume Mm -hmm. and so right you but then again they start another fire after that later in the film so yeah who knows it's kind of it's kind of questionable but I mean, I don't know, for me, one of my, uh, one of the favorite, like, just to get into the actor part of it, like Joel, I think did an amazing job playing Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, I thought he's definitely my favorite character out of all yeah. of them, at least. Um, I thought he, his performance was amazing just to like the way he, the way he did the role of like being this safety survivor kind of guy, like that he has to take care of his family and, and overall, I thought his performance was great. Just like just the way he goes from zero to a hundred in the sense of keeping family safe, safe, and and trying to negotiate of like we'll give you cans of food, you give us goats, kind of thing. And like mm-hmm. just like his overall performance, I thought it was amazing. Yeah, I was really really impressed with Kelvin Harrison Jr.'s uh, performance as Travis. Mm-hmm. In that, obviously, we get the adolescent perspective, but his character has such a wide range of emotions. He goes from grief to interest to trauma to uh, for lack of a better word, like arousal. And then he just runs the full spectrum of emotions yeah. in this film. And we really see how this situation affects people in this fucked up reality that they're living in. And I mean, it makes me want to watch his other movies um, too, just because he seems like a very young, but a very promising rising star just in terms of mm-hmm. the range of emotions. And he did, he wasn't, I mean, it speaks to the writing as well, but he was able to back that writing up. He's not just like the bratty teen that's screaming and overreacting to everything. Like it feels very genuine, everything that he emotes, whether it's the grief of dealing with his grandfather, a second round of grief when his dog dies, who was his grandfather's property, Mm -hmm. to when he meets Kim, all these different things that it doesn't feel like a traditional sort of adolescent performance for what it is. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think, and like you said, his relationship with his father is the central drive, essentially, of the movie in a way that, um, while I've never had to live through a pan, well, not as deadly of a pandemic with a yeah. father, but um, just seeing some of the 
rough edges to that relationship and how it's like you don't under he doesn't understand why his father is so seemingly so aggro. But that's only because his father has more than likely seen things that he has not had to see before. Right. I, I guess it comes to like the his teenage mindset that it's like I'm kind of I'm kind of glad that he's not the uh, aggressive like you were saying aggressive teen that yells and make noise and gets into trouble because I that would really piss me off. I don't know. I yeah. would have been so annoyed at, at a right. character like that in a situation like this. It, it really annoys me when a, a kid is like almost like like wa- like watching Ozark kind of thing. It's like where the kids are just always doing some stupid thing where you're not supposed to be doing. Like you have clearly <laughs> rules that you- your parents told you, don't do this, don't share this information. It's like, and then they actually do the opposite of what the parents tell them. It, it really bothers me, but I'm glad he, and he does a great job. Um, Calvin does a great job at really sh- um, selling his role. Um, and just like you were saying, like his range of emotions, I thought they were, they were amazing. I mean, I thought for, for that, I mean, to be a, a young actor and being able to perform those emotions on command, I'm assuming, mm-hmm. like the crying and the fact that he feels almost falls in love with this random girl that he just met. And then he has to go through the grief of his family dying or and his dog dying. It's like, that's a, that's a great performance. That's like a very wide range of a lot of emotions in one movie, which I'm, I'm assuming for an actor must be very hard to do. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I thought it was an amazing performance on his part. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in reapproaching this movie with better expectations for what it actually is, it's able, it's easier for us, I think, to appreciate the range of these performances and to really yeah. focus on this is character driven. This is based on their emotions and how this situation shapes them as people and how fear essentially is the thing that they should be fearing rather than other people to a certain degree. Right. But uh, yeah, did you have any last, last minute points that uh, I breezed past? Uh, no, I mean, I was just going to say the the character that plays Will, I honestly thought it was the same guy that plays, uh, Jon Snow. I don't know oh, why. Uh, it, Kit for Harrington. Me, <laughs> yeah. For me, it was like, is that, is that the guy that plays Jon Snow? That's, that's the only thing. Um, Christopher Abbott is, uh, he was in a movie with John Berthnall called, uh, uh, Sweet Virginia. That was like a neo-noir movie. That was like a crime yeah. movie where John Berthnall is a motel manager, but Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very good at not eliciting a lot of emotion on the face value. Yeah. Like if you just look at him, you can't tell what he's thinking. Right. You can only yeah. tell what he's thinking through what he says or in his actions. And that's the perfect type of actor to contrast against Joel Edgerton, who is very much, he emotes a lot. I right. Think. And when you contrast those two, it really does create friction between them in a way that mm-hmm. makes for good drama, especially right. a family drama or survival drama. Yeah, no, I think that I think the balance of those two characters really helped along the story and the plot of the movie, like really build up the tension that would be built had these two people met and had this been real life and you would met like this tension would have definitely built up. And I think their their acting and their their character themselves really they did a great job at selling it to be realistic in the sense of like, if you meet a random person, you would question them just like Paul did. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you would do the same thing that Will did in line to make sure your family survives, which I thought it was a great, a great way to to have these characters come in, come in contact with each other and really meet and really adds a lot to the movie. Compliments the sense of just unknowing and there's no good guys yeah. or bad guys. There's only survivors in this world. And right. that's usually not so clear cut in a lot of these kind of post-apocalyptic survival movies. It's usually the good and the bad are extremes of the same thing you know what i mean there's Mm -hmm. the good guys that are the saviors that want to save everybody and then there's the bad guys that they're like eating people or something like that and so just to have something have a movie that is 
a horror-centric post-apocalypse movie that is all about survivors and the neutrality almost of survivors in that we're just surviving. And even if I do something that is perceived as being violent or evil, my intention Mm -hmm. is not so to be evil, which we see with Paul. Like, he ends up killing an entire family and one of the members is a small children, which is a despicable crime, but... Is he doing those things because he wants to, because he enjoys it, because he's trying to take something from them? No, it's all about survival. And right. and Schultz gives us a view of the extremes of that uh, of that surviving, that survivor's yeah. instinct. And we may not like it, but it's very affecting and it's uh, very brutal. I think he, he did what he had to do in order to survive. So I think it's like, whether you like it or not, that had to happen. Or else, had he left, had he left Kim to run with the kid... What if she came back with 20 other people and they would have taken over the house? So it had to be done. And also I I like um, Carmen's performance um, as uh, Sarah, because I felt like she was the middleman between Travis and um, Paul, Yeah. because she seemed like more of reasoning. Like, like she, she took in consideration Travis's point of view, trying to, and trying to convince Paul to do certain things. But at the same time, as the movie goes on, you get to see she's starting to take more of Paul's point of view because Paul is more of a survival mode. Now you have other people come into your house and it's like, well, now I have to rely more on Paul because these people could kill us and take over the house. And I thought she did a great job at that in in the fact that for me, it came off as being her, her being the middleman between a, a innocent person who doesn't understand this, the thing about survival and Paul being very aggressive in survival mode all the time. Mm-hmm. And I thought she did a great job at her performance. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really core to the film in this role that mothers play yeah. in a family. And it's more so in terms of Paul's family than in Will's family that we see this where, like you said, she's the middleman essentially or the mediator between the two of them. And while at the beginning of the film, she's a little more leaning towards Travis in that she's yeah. understanding. She says, give him the benefit of the doubt, these things. But when it's go time, like she's yeah. a ride or die, essentially. Like, right. Like, <laughs> hey, we've gone to a place that we can't walk back. I have to do these things or people are going to die. Granted, right. she waits a little long to save Paul while he's getting his mm-hmm. face fucking bashed <laughs> yeah. by a rock. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, she's the one that shoots Will. And mm-hmm. that is kind of like the signifier for we've gone to the point of no return in that the the uh, Kim is running with the child and they're going to get away. Like you said, she could bring back 20 people from a camp yeah. that they are scouts for or whatnot. Um, and so just that reality of the unknown again and it being so character driven really speaks to just how strong this film is at conveying mm-hmm. that. Because, again, there's no literal boogeyman. But yeah. for me, it's more disturbing and more affecting to realize that in this fucked up reality, we're all the boogeyman, essentially. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, hey, I appreciate you picking It Comes at Night for us to talk about because this is a film that I've wanted to rewatch for a while, but didn't have the balls necessarily to revisit it <laughs> just because of how disturbing it was. But uh, yeah. based on your recommendation and a, uh, a glass of liquid courage or two, uh, I was glad <laughs> to finally get to revisit it and have such an in-depth conversation about it with you so thanks yeah no problem anytime i mean i thought it was i'm glad we i'm glad i decided because i had two options and i'm glad you picked this one because i wasn't really i was kind of iffy about the other one but i just wanted to give it a shot because i haven't watched it and this one i knew it was kind of slow but i don't know why i just decided to to give it a shot i wanted to rewatch and and i thought it was worth the rewatch so 
that's one of those things, man. I'm finding the more I have guests on and letting them decide, which is mm-hmm. what I generally try to do. Like once I shoot out a list of people sometimes when they can't think of something, I'm like, hey, yeah. pick something off of this. And so at this time you came to me with a list basically. And I was like, oh, hey, that's a film that I was not planning on revisiting, but now I'm glad I had the opportunity to revisit it. And right. I mean, I we, we got the result and I think it was a great conversation. So again, I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, no problem. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram and at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.